Open the door and step inside to a world of practical magic, where we blend the mystical and mundane worlds of the everyday witch. Presented by Wise Woman Witchery and hosted by Emily Morrison and Veronica Wade-Lewis. Hello, hello, and welcome to The Witch Next Door. We are continuing our interview series this month, January 2021. And before we launch today's episode, I just wanted to hop in here and give you all a little bit of a trigger warning. Uh, We cover a variety of topics today during this interview, but we do touch on a couple of topics that have potential to be triggering for some folks. We talk about death, suicide, and also uh, sexual abuse. So I just want to let you know before you dig in here to prepare yourself in case those feel like sensitive topics for you. And uh, I hope you enjoy this interview with Mortellis, who is an incredible author and a really amazing human, uh, as she shares her journey with us. Hi, and welcome to The Witch Next Door. I'm Emily, and we are continuing with our guests this month for January, getting to learn more about some of the people in the world who identify as witches and pagans and the work they're doing and how their spiritual path influences that work. Today, I'm really excited to have with us Mortellis. She is a author. Um, She is also a mortician, a gardenarian high priestess, and a necromancer. And she's going to be sharing with us today about her journey. Uh, So welcome, Mortellis. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. It's really a pleasure. I'm I'm always surprised when anyone asks me to come on because (laughs) I don't think I'm very interesting. So (laughs) I'm always confused when someone else does. Well, I got to tell you, you know, I was, uh, I was just kind of searching out, looking through the interwebs to discover what folks out in the world are doing. And I came across your book, which it looks like it's, it's going to be released in February of 2021. February 8th. Very excited. Just saw the final cover art yesterday. It's gone to print. Ooh, that is very exciting. My baby is ready to be born. (laughs) There's something about this window right before your book comes out where you've done all this work on it, but you haven't seen it or touched it. It's sort of a concept. And it it reminds me of being like eight months pregnant with my children because it's like, is it real yet? No, what's going to (laughs) be? This is sort of anticipation. It's exciting. Well, I was very intrigued by the title, Do I Have to Wear Black? Rituals, Customs, and Funerary Etiquette for Modern Pagans. Um, Because, well, for one, I I love learning about history and I love learning about kind of where where different customs come from. And that was the first thing that flagged. Is that sort of what you're going to be talking about in this book? So it's it's funny. And in mortuary school, I had all these experiences where I realized that the most of the structure of what we know funerals as today sort of stems from Christian ideology and those sorts of traditions. And there's still so much bias against non-Christians in the industry. And I really wanted to dispel some of, of that, at least to my fellow funeral workers. And uh, the name itself actually came from an experience that I had one day talking to someone where they were talking about attending a Wiccan funeral and how they found it creepy. And I I said, why, you know, what made it creepy for you? And 
And I said, well, just, you know, the priestess in, in all her black and it just was, it was incense, it was very strange. And I just, <laughs> I found myself wrinkling my nose at this and they were like, for example, if I go to a pagan funeral, do I have to wear black? And that just, it, it broke my brain because we wear black to funerals all the time. Right. <laughs> and the idea that this person perceived black as a color of mourning, unless it's a pagan funeral, in which case it's satanic. Right. Just that really stuck with me. And, and I thought, those are the kinds of questions people have. I'll answer them. Do yeah. I have to wear black? Well, probably not. I like it. So I wanted, I wanted to write a book much to Llewellyn's dismay. <laughs> that really talked to three audiences. I wanted to write a book for pagan individuals planning uh, for their end of life care and planning for death. I wanted to write a book for guests who might not be pagan so they would know what to expect. And I wanted to write a book for funeral professionals so that they would know how to serve those families. So I do my very best to juggle all those balls in the air and hopefully it will be a really good resource for people. Mm -hmm. um, I talk about multiple different traditions um, from British traditional Wicca to heathenry to the Lima and really go in depth into what their different practices are. So you should be able to walk prepared into any sort of funeral, regardless of what your role is there, guest or clergy or death care worker, you're, you're ready. That's a lot of information to fit into a book. It is. It's like 500 and something pages. It's a huge book. Wow. <laughs> I, uh, I remember when they sent me the, the printout to go over for edits and just holding it in my hands oh and my seeing what it was. For, I know our listeners can't see what we're seeing right now, but it's right. this, it's a coffee table. <laughs> it's a tome. That you just like... put legs on it. Yeah. But it's not dense. I, I maybe I'm totally biased, but it, it feels it, it feels interesting to to me even to go through and read back over what all these groups are doing and what they have to say about the practices. And I, I was so fortunate to work with a ton of amazing contributors from John Beckett to Leah Svensson, who runs um, Fox Among Ravens over at Patheos to um, Holly Moore from uh, Cherry Hill Sanctuary, just so many people from different uh, tradition backgrounds, you know, pitched in and, and did their part to help us, you know, deliver this message. And I think that's really awesome. That is really awesome. It's, it's definitely, I, I love when people come together and when you can kind of draw on different people's um, wisdom to help co-create something, it makes it that much richer. Absolutely. And, and really, when I started reaching out to people, I, I was amazed at how many people went, yes, this needs to exist. Oh. Yes. And I, I had the, the experience of reaching out to um, the OTO because I wanted to uh, share thalamic death rights, but I know that they have, um, they have a reputation of not really working with people and reprinting their materials, but they mm -hmm. felt so strongly about this message that they've allowed me to uh, reprint all of their death rights in wow. this work. So, so that's really amazing. I'm so glad that they worked with me on that. Yeah, that's pretty special. Yeah, it, it and, truly. It's a really big testament to um, kind of a void that needs to be filled. Oh yes. Right. Yeah. 
it's people need this information and the people who are holding that information understand the the potency of it I, I was having a conversation with the wonderful Misha Magdalene who wrote um, Outside the Charmed Circle, which I highly recommend. It's a favorite book of mine. And uh, they were saying that this was, this was somewhere that paganism let us down, that we had this, this generation from the 40s, 50s, and 60s making this beautiful thing, but now they're all dying. Mm -hmm. And they left us with nothing. It was like the one job religion is supposed to do. <laughs> and they left this younger generation with the, the balls in the air. So we're, we're trying to, we're trying to make that right. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Because when I think about like, I have a pretty extensive book collection, it's like kind of embarrassing, actually. But uh, the only book that I have found along the way is the pagan book of living and dying. Um, yeah, that's the only it. one I've seen. I have it right beside me. It's a good book, but it's not really the same kind of book. Mm -hmm. You open that book and it's a collection of poetry readings, yep. stories. Um, what I tried to write was something that was a manual. Yeah. I was considering my spouse a lot while writing the book because as a Gardnerian Wiccan, I'm an initiate of a tradition. Uh -huh. We have secret rites that my coven mates could perform for me but he could not be present for uh-huh what does my death look like to him and that's an interesting question I think mm -hmm. being shut outside of the faith practices of your loved one mm -hmm. and I realized that not just for mystery tradition practitioners but for pagans in general their families must feel that way because they don't have that foundational idea of what their loved one might have wanted so I wanted to, to dig into the idea of, well, I have died. What does my spouse need to plan my death in a way that he knows would honor me and bring me joy and, and give him the peace of knowing that he had done it the right way. Mm -hmm. So digging in and really doing that for, for each of the groups we included up to and including Discordianism, which is very fun. Um, that, that was a, I think it was a real gift that that I had the opportunity to be a part of it. Yeah. Well, and I can see your passion about it. And I know just, you know, um, in my, in my own life and also as a psychotherapist who like in my day job helps people move through their grief process. Um, we don't talk about death enough and we don't talk about these things about like, well, what, what do I want and how can my partner or family support that? And how can I support them by maybe planning in advance or having these conversations in advance? Um, they're really important and it's all part of being alive. I think another real issue is resource as well, yeah. because yeah. again, let's consider that let's take a, a Christian family whose child was pagan and maybe they were estranged and this child has died. Maybe this is the moment where they've decided I want to honor them as they were. Mm -hmm. how do they find what they need in a meaningful way? So I, I wanted to make sure that each, you know, each group, there's like a section, how do you find these people if you need someone in a time of need? And I think that's a real question we're not answering. Like we don't have a good sort of resource for that as a community. So yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, I think that especially right now during this pandemic and 
I've been doing a ton of volunteering as a mortuary worker. I have watched so many people have to come to terms with deaths that they did not expect. Uh They don't get to be in the room when someone dies. They don't get to attend a funeral and death care workers live stream an empty funeral in an empty room attended by no one to a family in another place. Mm-hmm. And there's this, this just vastness of, of empty longing grief. And I wanted to fill it with something meaningful. And it, it, it really was an odd feeling to be finishing that book just as all this was starting uh-huh and then editing it through this <laughs> there were so many I, bet. I, I found myself editing this book from like like mobile mortuary units sitting on the floor with my tablet where I'd worked all day like editing and going you know I need to say this differently because the world is different today uh-huh it was almost like rewriting the story that's so fascinating and and such a um I don't know. It's just a testament to creation when you create something and it comes into being and then the world around shifts and it makes new meaning out of what you created. And then you kind of have to pivot. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's, I I think that's, I love hearing this piece from you because now when I read it, I'm going to read it with a different lens. Right. And and I have to say Llewellyn was so amazing working with me. I was first time author who just sort of dive bombed a Llewellyn editor at an event like this doesn't exist, please make it exist. And of course, Heather Green being who she is said, well, why don't you make it exist? <laughs> <laughs> and then we we get to like the, the deadlines and we're in this tragedy and I'm out there working and, and they, they were so wonderful about going the extra mile to work with me so I could be out there doing that work mm-hmm. and still finish this and I I have to say that was really an amazing part of the process was just how much they were a part of what I was doing out there to make this be. Yeah. It sounds like you really got the support that you needed from kind of the foundational level. Truly, truly. Yeah. 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 Really wonderful people that I'm sure Heather will eventually be canonized and I look forward to lighting (laughs) candles to Saint Heather, who has put up with me far too much. I think that's her job. <laughs> Maybe she may tell you that I'm horrible to deal with, though. Uh, well, I'm kind of doubting that, but but I imagine that um, whenever anybody is in their process of like the wheels spinning, there's it's a lot. It's a lot of energy that's moving through as you create something. She told me I was the only author she had where she had to. Um, reel back instructions because I would just maliciously adhere to them until I did too much. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I'm a doer. I just, she's like everyone else I'm dragging across the finish line and you gave me like finished art. We didn't need that. (laughs) 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 Well, I'm sure you learned a lot about yourself in this process as well. And I, and I understand you're writing a second book. Is that correct? Oh my gosh. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. So um, as, this is a funny story. I, you can have the exclusive on this <laughs> anecdote. Um, so you, it's common when authors sign a contract that you agree that if you have another idea, you, you present it to that publisher. 
So I had such an agreement. And for some reason, that was a ton of pressure for me to have in the back of my mind. <laughs> and, so, and so I thought, I'll just, every idea that's ever lived in my head, I'll write them down, I'll make these proposals, and I will just turn in the amount that they wanted me to share with them for my contract immediately. <laughs> so poor Heather opens her email to like a dozen uh, fully drafted proposals and <laughs> mail me back like, what have you done? <laughs> So it is my pleasure to say that they have signed me to multiple book contracts. Oh my gosh. And I am at once writing all at once five books. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah, it's madness. And I'm doing that to myself. No one's making me do that to myself. <laughs> wow. That's pretty incredible. My next uh, book will be a, a practical look at necromancy as a meaningful part of of practice and not something that occupies a clearance shelf in hot topics steeped in ennui uh -huh. and eyeliner. <laughs> so can you say something about necromancy? I mean, just as a topic, because I know that there's some people who do have this kind of negative connotation with that word. Um, and I'd be curious to hear your spin. Well, if you would like, I was writing a little paragraph earlier that I would be happy to read to you. Awesome. Yeah. Classically, Wiccan rituals at the least have been led by a pair of individuals with one ostensibly representative of life and the other death. And somewhere between lies a balance of reincarnation, rebirth, and the story that is creation. So it was that I found myself considering, rather than what makes ritual necromantic, considering instead what makes the ones we are all too familiar with about life. The general construct of a magic circle, more or less, is to declare your intentions, consecrate needed items, cast a circle, call quarters, invoke necessary figures, do intended work, make offerings, close the space. On a micro level, that magic circle is a giant clock. Midnight set in the east, entrances, beginnings, turning on a pivot point. This circle with its quarters neatly laid out represents a build of energy, upward, round and round, right hip to the altar as we move clockwise creating. But why? Life is linear. And as we move forward in our inexorable march toward death, the hands of the clock ever moving forward, the right hand in which we hold our athame, positioning the body's inferior vena cava toward the center, a reminder that, as is nature's way, we are dying. Historically, necromantic rituals have relied upon the concept of invoking death as a return, and therefore of reversals. So what then does it mean to turn this life-oriented magic circle on its head? Our clock face reoriented, midnight now lies in the west, and we begin and end our circumnambulations there. That cross-quarter compass laid out across its face, now a crossroads, a path by which the dead might travel to and from this place. Athame in the left hand, we move counterclockwise round, now anchored to our magic circle, is the side of the body upon which lies the descending aorta, from which life-giving oxygenated blood flows into our bodies, the left atrium of the heart having revived, nay, raised from the dead, Lifeless, deoxygenated blood was in the context of our body's own natural system. What then is functionally different about this necromantic ritual? 
walking our ritual back in time, we begin with libations and end with consecration. Rather than building up a cone of power, our energy reversed spirals downward into the cavernous depths of the earth. In many folk practices, one danced counterclockwise around a grave to summon the dead and commune with them. Here, we dance around an altar, a bowl of grave dirt at its center, the shades of the dead spun upward to walk the path that we have laid down for them. A necromantic ritual is, in essence, adjusting your intentions, turning your magic on its head. The center of our magic circle, now truly a fulcrum point upon which we might have mastery over polynogenesis and death. Beautiful. Thank you. Beautiful language. I mean, the imagery is amazing as well, but just you have a flow. <laughs> I think we have this idea that necromancy is about body parts and corpses, and it can be that a lot of my magic surrounds being in a prep room embalming someone. But necromancy is about life. It's about turning the clock backward. And just as much as necromancy is about life, the magic of life is always going to be about death. Mm -hmm. Samuel Beckett said in Waiting for Godot that every woman gives birth astride a grave, light glimmers for an instant, and then it's gone. That's necromancy, and that is life. And I would argue that no, no circle that even remotely resembles a Wiccan one would be balanced or complete without an understanding of that balance. Mm -hmm. I think that's a really important piece just, just as we move through our lives to, to really think about, you know, I think that many people spend their entire life denying the fact that they're going to die. Right. As a result, we don't always take in the beauty of what exists now because we're always thinking about the next thing, but we're not thinking about the next thing, which is eventually we're all going to leave this, this plane. Um, so it's, it's a really powerful and important part of the human existence. I love that passage that I read you because even reading it to myself, it feels very heavy and quiet in the uh -huh. room. Doesn't it? You find yourself feeling that space around you and contemplating it. it uh, there's a book you may have read called uh, The Worm at the Core. Mm -mm. Uh, I highly recommend it. Uh, it's sort of a book about living and being human and, and how death and mortality is this idea that we spend so much time avoiding that we never stop to live. Uh-huh. How can we create if we cannot accept destruction? Mm-hmm. We focus our circles on the goddess, on the moon, on the feminine, on creation upon birth, but those things cannot be without an end. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's sort of been an interesting piece of my magic as a non-binary person who was sort of coming out at a late at a late stage in life where I had spent so much time working as a priestess in circle and just sort of stepping into this space where I was saying that, you know, I recognize that this isn't just goddess and God, this is life and death. Mm -hmm. That as a person who is both a mother and an agent of death through mm -hmm. my work as a mortician, that I stand on the counterbalance of that scale. And that, that here in the middle is a place where my magic actually makes more sense. And that's been a, it's been an interesting sort of 
journey for me to to come around to sort of that, that magical way of thinking about who I was as a person and the work that I was doing. Mm -hmm. Well, it's also a testament to the ever, ever evolving um, way that we move through the world. You know, right. every experience that we have brings us to this next level of, of our being and our awareness. I mean, not to get like too far out there, but. <laughs> I really am with you. And, and I think that's sort of an interesting thing too. I mean, as, as women or, or people sign female at birth, just that sort of experience of uh, moving from childhood into reproductive years into like that sort of crone experience, like you're, you're sort of shifting through that always. I personally never really identified with the, with the triple goddess mm -hmm. ideology because I feel that, I feel like it goes too far to, um, paint us in a light that that states that that our worth is tied to beauty and fertility mm -hmm. um, so that does not vibe with me but um, but it, it is interesting to move through life as as creator and then destructor mm -hmm. we go through those sort of cycles and that's it's really interesting to me well at the end of the day it's all cyclical i mean i mean in my own spiritual practice it's all everything revolves around cycles it's all birth and death and rebirth and um you know that's i think that's part of being human it's also just part of what's happening around us at any given moment it's nature it's all of it um, and it, it, i talk a lot about um that sort of cyclical nature in do i have to wear black and mm -hmm. um i talk about it for a bunch and then i reject it <laughs> i think that that's beautiful and important to understand that that cyclical nature of return and reincarnation of birth and death. But I think it's also important that we recognize um, that it should be rejected as an inherent truth. Mm -hmm. The idea that cycles are how nature works and that's the end of the sentence, it's just not true. Take for example, apoptosis or cell death. Mm -hmm. In your body, cells live and they die and that's the end of them. They die all the time. In the course of five years, you will be a different person with a different body inside and out because your cells regenerate constantly. When a cell does not die, when it chooses to regenerate in a cyclical manner, do you know what that becomes? No. Mm -mm. That is what cancer is. Oh, interesting. Sometimes I think getting too hung up in the cyclical regenerative cycle rejects the fact that there are natural ends to things. Mm -hmm. And those are important to stare at in the face sometimes and think about the fact that is regeneration always a good thing? Mm -hmm. Is that cycle always useful? And those are questions I don't think people are really asking about their magic. Mm -hmm. Interesting when you do. <laughs> Well, what's really interesting is that when I think about cycles, I do think about the 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 one that goes, you know, live, die, be reborn over and over. But there's also that ending that launches into some other kind of beginning that doesn't tie into this circle. Right. But it's still a cycle, right? There's that energy still exists somewhere. Right. Um, yeah. And I talk, I talk about that a bit as well. I don't want to give away the farm, but. Uh... <laughs> buy it and read it and give a copy to your hospital clergy and your hospice and your library. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Seriously. 
I, I've never written a book before and I don't know a thing about the income one might make from them. I know this, every author I know has a day job. Yes. So I, don't, I don't care about book royalties. What I do care about is this being a resource that can help people. So if you can encourage your local library to pick up a copy, you can get it in the hands of your local military clergy, that kind of stuff. I, I just, I want it to go live the places where it can help people. Well, and I know, I mean, I, I have had the misfortune, I guess, of uh, frequenting a funeral home here in town, and they have an extensive book collection that they have books for sale um, in, and this would be, I think, a perfect book to have present there. Definitely recommend. I, yeah. I will send them my info and I'll call them. Or... <laughs> <laughs> no, I've been, a, one of the things I've done is I've called like every mortuary sciences program in the United States, just like, please add this to your services yeah. program because I'll send it to you for free. I don't have to give it to you if you will make people read it because it's, uh, it, it's shocking. Um, how little information there is about um, faith practices as regard funerary needs outside of Abrahamic belief practices. Mm -hmm. um, in, in the funeral industry, that's almost all we're taught. Yes. And it, it's it, depressing. Yeah. <laughs> the only word I mean, I've got for it. And then it's apparent as, you know, as a, I guess, a consumer of, you know, having to go in and, and make these funeral plans. And um, it's very much al along the lines of Christianity and, and what, what Psalm do you want read and all of that. I'm like, none of that, <laughs> not that. And of course you can always, you can ask for things, but I think people don't feel empowered to do that. And they're, they're, they're too grief stricken to do it. Right. And they don't, they don't know what the law is. Yeah. And so many questions. So I wanted to dispel a lot of that and, and uh, also empower funeral homes to sort of go, okay, so these are, these are the boundaries. I get it. So hopefully, hopefully we can change the world just one funeral home at a time. That's my, <laughs> that's my hope. Yeah. I think it's really important work that you're doing. Um, and, and information that you're bringing, bringing out to the masses. <laughs> I, hope, I hope, maybe it's terrible. No one will read it. And I just, this is awful. Have you seen this? <laughs> the yeah, I don't, know. I don't... Blinks. It's, <laughs> it's not... <laughs> no, I don't think it, it can't be terrible. If it's, if, did you write that paragraph you read? Yes. So yes. there you go. <laughs> it's going to be awesome. And, and people are going to buy it. And, um, and I hope that it does influence some at least thoughts and conversations for for people and families and and practitioners of death work. I told my spouse recently that uh, my wildest dream with, with this book would be if it inspired someone else to write a better version of it. Uh -huh. <laughs> if someone else picks up the ball and starts the conversation somewhere else, that would be amazing to me. Well, it's not just a, a one directional conversation. It has so many facets and roads, right? So really it's like what you've created here sounds like it has a launching point for a lot of those different roads to go down right? Um, and and then expand. And I'm sure it's a, it's a conversation that can happen in many different ways and likely will, will inspire someone else to begin it. Right. And death is a story that belongs to all of us. Yes. And we, we all have to do our part to tell that story. Absolutely. Absolutely. 
wow. So we went down a whole different road than I had had planned, which is totally <laughs> great and fine. Um, but I do want to ask you a couple more questions, if that's okay. Absolutely. Cool. Um, I, I guess I want to know how do you describe your own spirituality? I mean, do you are do you feel like you you really identify with um, with being a Wiccan? Is that where you go with that, or is there a different a different way you identify that? That's a really big question. I know it is. I know it is. <clears throat> I I have been. Um, I have been what you would call a witch most of my life. Mm -hmm. Even without context, I was like a, a weird little pagan kid hiding around fundamentalist Christians, right? Like talking to trees and stuff. Did not always work out for me, by the way, but you know, um, I had a very powerful spiritual experience when I was five years old and that set me down this path. And, um, so I practiced as some kind of eclectic pagan for many years. Um, at a point, I was sort of looking for, I don't know, what do we all look for when we start digging deeper into spirituality? We're looking for a family and community and mm -hmm. um, to go deeper with it. And um, I, it, I never intended to wind up being a, an initiate of Gardnerian craft, but that is where I wound up. And now I am an elder of that tradition and run a teaching coven uh, here in Western North Carolina. I would call myself a Gardnerian Wiccan. My private practice doesn't always look like that though. Uh -huh. I have a fairly eclectic private practice that goes everywhere from obviously necromantic grimoire magic to uh, cometicism to things that look a little bit like voodoo so it's sort of all over the place and i work with a ton of deities from very disparate pantheons so um i'm a witch and i don't know what else to tag on to that <laughs> that's best answer <laughs> i would say what gardnerian craft has been for me since that's the title right um learning it, teaching it, passing it on for me has been about structure, about the fact that it's, it does have this long history of, of being there for people and being, being a family. That, and I wanted to share that sense of community, but uh, Gardnerian craft is orthopraxic, not orthodoxic. It's not about what you believe, it's about what you practice. So I, I look at that practice as, um, cooking school, you learn how to make a cake, go off and make whatever kind of cake you want to after you go to uh -huh. cooking school. So that structure is something that I can apply in a lot of directions. And that has been very useful for me and, and I feel for others. So it's a lot of tools, you're gathering a lot of tools for your toolbox, and then right. you get you figure out different ways you might be able to use those tools. Right, exactly. So okay. how, go ahead. I was going to say, I think there's a, there's a lot of stereotyping around British traditional Wicca where people have this idea that it's it's this very like um, cisgender, heterosexual, god is god kind of like, like, like we're the GOP of Wicca, which is <laughs> that's not true at all, actually. I think you would find that the vast preponderance of Gardnerians today are people like me, just oddballs from the LGBTQ community, just stirring the pot in there, you know? Mm -hmm. 
using the the traditions and the foundations of the practice, but kind of making it their own. Right. Yeah. Very true. Yeah. So I'm curious how your, I mean, well, we've identified, right? You wrote, you wrote this amazing book. You have a lot of really great ideas about other, other information to bring into the world. And, and you're also a mortician. Um, are there other things that you do? I know I looked at your website and it looks like you have quite a few offerings. Well, um, also a very big question. There, there's this running gag amongst my friends that I'm a, a factotum. Are you familiar with that term? I'm not. A factotum is, is a servant and they're someone who does a little bit of everything. They, okay. they're, they're consummate dabblers. And I, I grew up in a fundamentalist cult that did not believe that women should be educated. So the gag is that I have four college degrees and no high school diploma. I've never been to elementary school, for example. I love learning because learning was denied to me. So I'm always trying new things. And um, my first degrees were in art. So I do uh, everything from pottery to painting. I do a lot of volunteering as a face painter at the county fairs and stuff, um, which feels weird pasted on top of the death witch, I know. but. <laughs> Um, it's balance. It's all balance. Right. Spent years uh, volunteering for hospice. I have three children. Mm -hmm. um, love to bake. I love to sew. I do a ton of crafting. I make custom talismans whenever someone asks me. Um, gosh, make incense, all kinds of fun things. Yeah. Yeah. I noticed you have incense, um, different types of incense on your site and soap too. It looked like. I do. I, I love crafting. So yeah. I have, I, I take all the stuff I like and stick my magic on it. <laughs> I love like, it. Like a crow. I just, I have all the shiny things I like filling my nest up. <laughs> yeah. So good. And people can find those things on your website, right? Yes. At www.mortellus.com. That's M-O-R-T-E-L-L-U-S. Um, I have a streaming channel in there on my store page where you can watch uh, old workshops that I've done. And remember, I'm just one person. So anything you buy or do uh, directly impacts my life. Uh, use those funds to fill our coven library with books, which we make available to the community, actually. Oh. And we have a street level food bank, which is the only food bank in our very rural town that does not have any sort of religious requirement. And anyone can walk up at any time, night or day and take one thing or everything as they wish. So, so your, your purchases go to all of those nifty things. Right. It's well, it's really paying it forward, right? It's like just feeding the community and, and building those those bonds and yeah. relationship. Sometimes it might be paying for my own dinner while I'm out volunteering, for, <laughs> but yes, um, I've been working as a DMART volunteer through the pandemic, which uh, means I have not received a paycheck since March and that's no fun at all, but that's a lot of people are having that experience. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we go to hotspots and have to cover our own travel and place to sleep and food. And Wow. There are a lot of mortuary workers out there sleeping in like body trays in a morgue because they can't afford hotels anymore. <laughs> so wow, we have to buy our own equipment, and it's 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 pretty much a disaster out there. So yeah, 
Keep wow, that well, thank you. Thanks for doing that work. And, and to anybody who might be listening, who is also doing that work. Thank you, because it's, it's important and necessary. I would say to your listeners, you know, I know we're recording this in December, but January is not going to be any prettier. Yeah. Especially with the holidays. So if you're considering helping out or making donations, definitely look at your local mortuaries, your morgues, your funeral homes, see if they need gloves, masks, take them some donuts. Those people are working very hard. Yeah. Yeah. No joke. Thanks for, thanks for plugging that. Cause I think it's really important that, um, you know, it's not something we hear about right in the day to day. Um, the other question that I really wanted to ask you was, you know, we've identified kind of all this this work that you're doing and then also what your spiritual faith is and, and your practices. How does how does your spiritual foundation support inform um in into it into the work that you're doing? I was looking forward to you asking this question because I was going to immediately argue with you. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> I'm ready. I would say that my uh spirituality or doesn't inform my work so much as the other way around okay i i may have mentioned um an experience i had when i was young that mm -hmm. experience was uh dying <laughs> uh kind of huge uh i i uh i'll save you the the trigger warning but i had terrible experience when i was five years old and my tiny self responded to this by attempting suicide wow and uh spent four days in a coma and that was all very scary, I'm sure, for people in my life. And um, none of that matters because what matters is while I was dying, um, I met a deity and had this experience of descent into the underworld. And that was so visceral for me that even at five, I came back utterly changed. Mm -hmm. It didn't matter what kind of situation I was in. It didn't matter what kind of parents I had. It didn't matter the world I was occupying or how scary it was. I knew that I had a job to do. All I had to do was survive and fulfill the tasks that were set before me. And uh, that primarily centered around working with the dead. Mm -hmm. So all of the work that I have done has been to get to a point where I could do that work. All of the volunteering I've done across the course of my life has been to get to a point where I could do that work. And it is all in service to those deities. So I do the job for them. Uh -huh. I don't inform the job with them. Uh -huh. And yet they, that, they influence the choices that you've made along the way. Right, absolutely. Yeah. Um, while I was in that coma, I was deceased for seven minutes. Wow. I am very fortunate to not have any brain damage from that experience. Yeah. But uh, in remembering where I went and, and what I was told and what that was for me, I knew that I had a responsibility to fulfill the, the work of that deity and and so I always tried to put myself in a position where I could be there for the grieved or work with the dead and make sure that they had meaningful funerary rites and that I was doing that sort of psychopomp crossing over work and that I was 
informing and working toward a, a place where we could honor those individuals in death and honor their gods and make those offerings and and have those true rights as they were meant to be. So I have always worked toward that. Mm -hmm. Wow. It's, I was just thinking how this horrible situation that happened for you at a very young, young age, I mean, five is, is like tiny, tiny people at five, right? But how that in some ways was a gift of medicine that you bring into the world throughout your life um, because you've got a message that you listen to. I feel like... I feel like this is one of those days where it's too hard for me to talk about the experience. Sure, that's okay, don't. Um, but I, I experienced a sexual assault mm -hmm. at five and um, I look at it as though the little girl that experienced that died and did not return from that place. That, that I was allowed to stay in the underworld over a passage of time and be reincarnated into my own body mm -hmm. such that this stronger healthier reborn version of who I am could go on and live that life in her place mm -hmm. because that was not a world she was strong enough to occupy right right it makes sense I guess no it totally makes sense um I think about I mean I, I don't want to I don't want to take your um your experience from an earthly experience and take it too too far into the nether regions um, of of the universe, but it just really makes me think about how. In I believe that we all have helpers, guides out there, and it sounds like those beings, whatever they were or are, really showed up for your small self in that moment, and we're like, no, we got this. Like we're gonna help you out, right? Um, whether that's your experience or not, that's just how I'm hearing it right now. I um, certainly, for anyone who wants to hear the full tale, I, I do. I do make the difficult choice to write about it in my book, in talking about dissent. Um, so it, it exists there, and certainly I've spoken about it on other podcasts. If you want to go find it, but um, um, in reaching the underworld, um, truly that experience felt like I was there forever and i don't know how else to frame that up but a large passage of time occurred in the seven minutes that i died mm -hmm. um, it feels like it was a lifetime there or more there's no time stamp on what that experience was um, but i recall being done being there and knowing that i had to leave and stepping off into this nothingness and just walking towards a light that I could see. And at the end of it was this, this female figure, feminine, I should say, rather, but um, just this strong barefooted woman in a green woolen dress that looked fine, but worn. Uh, she had a, a knife at her hip, I remember, that stood out to me as a kid. And uh, she knelt down and looked me in the eyes and no one had ever looked at me like that before. And that felt so powerful to me that, 
you, you, you ever, I know you know what I mean to, to, to say when you're a kid and you see someone that you think is super cool looking and they look super strong and almost frightening to you, but, but uh, she was that. And then for her to kneel down and embrace me felt huge, huge. And uh, she gave me this message that I, it, it wasn't my time to be finished, that I had to go back. I had work to do for her and that I did not belong to my family anymore that I was her child and that it was my responsibility to to do the tasks that she set before me and I woke up in a hospital bed with a bald doctor yelling at me (laughs) that's a transition (laughs) transition I know but um yeah just this this idea that this this figure came for me and it took me many many years to recognize who the figure surrounded by all those crows was but now I recognize her and the Morgan stays with me always Mm -hmm. yeah that's that's a really um I don't know it gave me chills and as you were telling it, I could feel it. I mean, I, I felt into what I imagined that experience was, obviously what I imagined because it's yours. But uh, yeah, thank you for sharing that with us. It's funny. I, I, I see a lot of people that, that work with the Morgan. She certainly has called a lot of people to yes. her. Yes, she has. And I'm amused once in a while because we've all seen a follower of a deity and gone, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I'll see an, like an altar on Pinterest or something to the Morgan. There'll be like a bowl of bullets and I'll go, what is this? I don't know what this is. What the hell is this? Um, but no, people will talk about how she is not a motherly deity. And that's true. She's not particularly nurturing. Uh-huh. She's, she's stern. She's a stern deity. But, but uh, in that moment, that was the closest thing to a mother I had ever known. So I have always viewed her that way, even though I know she is not a maternal matronly deity. So probably that says more about like my broken trauma mess that that's a friendly mom character to me, but, but uh, it's um, certainly better than what I had mm-hmm. by a mile. Well, and the word that comes to mind for me is leader, like, like a very powerful energy that can really hold space and and lead. And, um, and there is a not necessarily motherly aspect of that, but, but an energy, um, that is comforting. I think that says more, it says more about what our expectations of motherhood, yeah. are, doesn't it? where we expect yeah. mothers to be something particular, but we forget that they are people yeah. are individuals who are all different and unique and strong and have their own approach to life and living and being and what they want from their offspring and the world. And, you know, maybe we should think about the fact that, that whatever that deity is can be a mother because she just is. <laughs> so, right. Well, that, yeah, you just sent me on a whole other, my mind just blew up. I was like, <laughs> Oh my God, I just thought of a whole other series about of podcasts about the mother and like <laughs> what that means. <laughs> you call me back and I will talk to you about what it was like to 
uh, be pregnant with twins while I wrote a death book and went to mortuary school and then <laughs> and then like going to labs and taking a donor infant the same age as my own child uh -huh. sitting in a body freezer holding that baby until tears froze on my face and then come home and hold my own children and then be excited to see me and jump up into the same arms that held a death equitable to them hours before. That's a picture of motherhood no one wants to look at. Yeah, that's a, that is, it, I just, the word that keeps coming to me as you're talking today is transformation, like this constant state of transformation coming up to edges and then transforming and then coming up to edges and transforming. And that's, that's really what death is, right? Yeah. I think it, we could all laugh all day about memes on the internet about like, I'm a, I'm, I'm a salad witch and I'm, I'm a B-movie witch. Like we see the memes, right? Yes. <laughs> I'm being terrible. <laughs> oh, you see all the pictures about like the death witches and they're all like, it's all black and it, it, it's a stereotype, right? But death is gray. Death is neutral. Death is kind. Why would death have any motivation for cruelty mm -hmm. at all? If you like, I'll leave you with one last snippet. All right. It's rather cheating, I know. But... It's cheating? How is it cheating? I feel like it's cheating because I'm relying on words I don't have to say right now. <laughs> Every night, my gaze drifts to the twinkling memory of long dead stars. Those that humanity wishes upon hangs its hopes and dreams upon that bring joy to our darkness. Gazing out to this memory written in light, it tells the story of a past I have never been a part of. There is beauty in death. The stars are ghosts. The night sky, a cemetery of light. Death need not fight against you and will often fight for you, knowing it will gather you home eventually. Death loves and treasures those who rail most against it. The healers and defenders and survivalists and necromancers and mad scientists and immortal gods. They pour everything they are into fighting it, denying it. And death adores every desperate scrap of strength and will and brilliance and raw determination poured out against it. When your strength is done and all your will and brilliance run out, death gathers you close beneath a warm, dark cloak and whispers, you were magnificent, well done. Death does not seek to hasten an inevitable end. It chastises those who seek to hasten it for others in death's stead. Those who would slowly and patiently plot and sow and siphon away from others, because who are they to hasten death's domain? Who are they to deny death its time and place? Who are they to cut short these vital glories that illuminate it so? Who are they to presume upon death's will? one that is so much larger and so much longer than theirs. Who are they to call and presume, presume that death of all beings should obey? Death is not a hunter, but a gatherer. Death is always and eternal and loves you and can afford to wait. Death will fight for you and defend you, place its hand upon those who would speed you to its embrace. Death has no need to rush, only to greet you when you call. Death is kind and patient, and before all and above all, inevitable. Wow.
that does feel like um, a really beautiful way to wrap this conversation. Thank you so much for having me with you today. Thank you for being here and for sharing so deeply and honestly about your own experiences and your own journey um, through this lifetime. And yeah, I'm grateful for your time. It was a pleasure and I'm happy to come back anytime and chat. All right. Excellent. Well, seriously, you just inspired this mother idea. So I got to work on that, but, (laughs) and for those of you out there listening, uh, you've got to check out this book. So it doesn't come out officially until February 8th of 2021, but you can pre-order it. And I would encourage you to do so. Um, I know that you can get it on Amazon because I've seen it there. Um, but you can also order it directly from Martellus, right? Mm-hmm. On your yeah. website with you a, get a signed copy. A signed copy with a, a sample of Amy Blackthorne's fantastic tees that she designed specifically for this purpose and probably doodles of crows and toddler <laughs> fingerprint stains all come free with that. <laughs> <laughs> You had me at toddler fingerprint stains. There's, there'll probably be something like some dog hair. <laughs> Keeping it real. You know, that's right. all we got. That's what we got to do. Keep it real. This is not a factory. This is. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. All right. Great. Well, uh, please go check it out and can, repeat your website again. I'm going to put it in the, the show notes as well. www.mortellis.com. And you can also find me at Pathios Pagan as a crow and the dead. Excellent. All right, everyone, take good care, and we'll talk to you again very soon. Thanks for tuning in to The Witch Next Door. You can help others find us by subscribing to and rating this podcast. If you're interested in supporting this work, you can do so through the Anchor Support link in our description. And if you're ready to dive a little deeper, hop on over to wisewomanwitchery.com And check out the Wise Woman Witchery Diving Deeper monthly membership group. The details and sign-up link are available there. And remember, you are magic. Embrace it. Thank you for joining us on The Witch Next Door. Join us next week as we explore more ways to make every day more magical. Can't wait? Visit wisewomanwitchery.com or follow Wise Woman Witchery on Facebook and Instagram to stay up to date on all current offerings and be a part of the tribe. All episodes are created by Emily Morrison and Veronica Wade Lewis. Music written and performed by Jean Cornelius.